0: This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. Today we speak to two proud First Nations PhD candidates at Griffith University whose Indigenous identity and family connections, along with their wealth of experiences from the classroom as former teachers, are informing their specialist research. Coompa Mary Saltwater woman Madeleine Pugin is investigating Indigenous human rights, particularly cultural rights, and how Aboriginal groups can have their identity better recognised. While Gumbanji Dungari woman Julie Balangari is researching how to make education policy more effective and truly inclusive. She wants to find out why Indigenous education policies keep failing to address the fundamental issue of education inequality. Both are breaking down the barriers in what are traditionally male-dominated fields in the hope their findings can place Indigenous perspectives at the centre rather than on the periphery of policymaking. Julie and Madeline also have invaluable insights into how to better support Indigenous PhD students so that they don't just survive, but rather thrive in the university environment. Madeline and Julie, welcome to the Gender Card today.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Thank you. Wonderful to have you here and to hear about this important research that you're both doing as uh, PhD candidates and researchers here at Griffith. Julie, we've spoken to you before. It'll be great to get a, a little update on how you've been going. Can you tell us a bit about your
1: country, where you come from, and also how that integrates with your research? Yeah, no worries. So... I'm Julie Bellingary. I'm a Gumbanga Dungari woman. We come from northern New South Wales, and my family in particular comes from Barraville and sort of the Nambuka sort of area there. Yeah, since I last spoke to you, I've been conducting interviews for my research. So, my research is about the Indigenous education policies and looking at the policy making process and, and why they have continuously failed for a period of decades, and that there hasn't been much change in the policy outcomes and so I've been very privileged and blessed to sit down with lots of different people around this and I feel like um, my head is full of, I don't want to call them secrets but my head is full of knowledge and I'm really enjoying putting it all together and the story because we are great storytellers as Indigenous people and that's how I see my thesis so it's coming along. I'm hoping to wrap up my interview's within the next month or so and I've been analysing them as they've been going along. So there are some emerging themes, things that I didn't think I would find but I have found and probably the most enjoyable part of it to date has been talking to the older Indigenous um, people that have worked on these policies. Last week I had the opportunity to sit down with an elder and she's has a wealth of knowledge and experience and I, I sat at her feet actually quite almost like informal, I sat at her feet and I sat up and I listened to her speak, which is almost like protocol in a sense, and just sitting and listening and letting her talk. And that's one other thing that I've come along the journey is to realize that interviews, in a sense, don't necessarily work with our mob. They do, but they don't. So I have been yarning and have moved more into a yarning methodology. And and I guess we'll go into a little bit more about that as we talk, but it's definitely something that's more natural for me. It's definitely more natural for them, but for different people, different ways of interviewing, and that's going to come through in my research.
0: How important is it for you or how central is it to integrate your Indigenous background, your country, as you were telling us about, in your research?
1: A hundred percent. It's really important because it's the reason that I'm doing it and it's the reason that a lot of us do it. We don't do research for the sake of doing research. We do research because we're accountable to our community and we want a better future for our children and our grandchildren and future generations. But also our ancestors have sacrificed so much for us to be here that we have to continue the good fight and the journey and that is also one thing that I've come, come through for myself personally is at how hard those old fellas fought for us and that sometimes we take it a little bit for granted.
0: One of the beautiful things that you both have in common, of course, is you both come from a teaching background. Yeah. Madeline, can you tell us about your country as well and really your path, I suppose, from from teaching into your research area now?
2: Sure. My name is Madeline Pugin. I'm a Coombermery saltwater woman from the Gold Coast, which is my grandmother's traditional country. I was in secondary education for about four years. I was an English teacher and I made the move to higher ed and research because I saw an issue my community was facing and they still are facing and I thought that higher education and that pathway would be a way to help me understand what is happening in my community and why it is happening and perhaps uh, look for ways in which we can be empowered to deal with what's happening.
0: And what were some of those issues that you noticed, particularly on the ground? I mean, that experience must be invaluable as a researcher.
2: Yes. So we're very diverse peoples as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And in my community, our identities are quite complex, especially being urban Aboriginal people. So I'm really interested in understanding why people identify the way they do. And collectively, what does that mean for us?
0: So that's really led into what your discipline is. You're both in the same school, is that right, but but have quite contrasting research areas.
2: Yeah, so I'm looking at Indigenous human rights. I'm looking at the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is commonly referred to as UNDRIP, and within that, cultural rights with a focus on group identity
1: how about for you julie yeah so madeline falls into the international relations side of things and i fall more into the government side of things and i think they're two really important areas for us mob to be in because technically it was international conventions that led to colonization through the doctrine of discovery which allowed colonization so international relations plays a huge part in our history And in government, in particular, me, in policy, and policies play a huge part. And you could almost say that 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 doctrine of discovery was a policy in a sense. So whilst they are fairly different, are different areas in the field, they are eerily connected.
0: So really looking at who created these policies and where those tensions lie and how that can be resolved a bit better for Indigenous people?
1: Definitely. And I think too, one of the main things is, and Madeline and I have talked about this quite a bit, is that our discipline is quite a Western colonial discipline. And we're coming in from with a different lens, a different perspective. And yeah, a lot of our rights, whether it be on an international level, as Indigenous people around the world or even at a local level, have been dictated by these systems.
0: And you're looking, Madeline, more at the, the Indigenous human rights, as you were saying, that that cultural kind of rights as well, the, that group identity and how that impacts on education. Would that be right or is it even broader than that?
2: Broader. Julie's more the education focus, whereas yep. I'm looking at individuals, but then how collectively we identify and what does that mean for us in terms of policies and how can UNDRIP support us in achieving our goals?
1: And it can also fall back into my discipline, UNDRIP, in a sense, because if you actually look at the the document, it has all these different articles. I'm sure Madeline can tell you more because I'm not that versed in it. Mm -hmm. But there is one particular section. Well, there's two that are really pertinent to both of us. One of that is the right to self-determination that's one of the articles and the other one is the right to be educated in a way that Indigenous people want to be educated mm-hmm. so whilst again they're so different they that particular document can feed into what we're doing absolutely
0: can you tell us a little bit about what you found Madeline and what about for you with uh, as Julie was saying that it, that Indigenous culture and identity how how is
2: that impacting on you and the way you're actually doing your research it's so important it's It can't be separated from us. It's who we are as Aboriginal women. And Indigenous methodologies in general, they're so important to our research because it is who we are and how we operate and how we see the world.
1: And I think it's important too to strip away even the methodologies title from it because I know that we use it and we use it because we're in academia, but it's just our way of doing things. And I know we've got to put a title on it because we're writing a, a thesis and a dissertation and, and we have yep. to, you know, um, fit it within what it is required, right? But at the end of the day, it is how we operate on a day-to-day basis.
0: I remember, Julie, you saying uh, that you're, you're quite a policy wonk, that you're trying to get people excited about policy again. It sounds like that's something you've both got in, in common too, <laughs> Madeline, because much I think sometimes... Uh, People think that these UN things, they're just very removed from our everyday life. But are you finding that that's not the case?
2: Absolutely. And that's what my research is trying to do, bring that international down to the local and looking at, okay, Indigenous peoples around the world have fought so hard for us to achieve that document. What does it mean? We need to put meat on the bones of it, bring it down to the local level and start using it.
1: Yeah, because one thing in particular I remember looking into UNDRIP was that it's up to us for the implementation of it. And so I've touched on it a bit by looking at it in terms of education and self-determination. But, yeah, it's just a, a convention that's there that nation states have signed up to to say, like, in goodwill that they will do it. But whether it's done on the ground or not is another thing. And I think Madeline's research is really important for that because, you know, it's starting to pave a way that if we can use this, particular document, then maybe we can be unstoppable in a sense at making things better for our mob. Julie
2: made a good point about it's there, but it's up to us to apply it because non-Indigenous people probably aren't inclined to, that it's about our (laughs) communities and our rights
1: that we are essentially fighting for. And I mean, we've been banging on about self-determination for decades. Decades. You know, and it's in this document. I mean, Madeline can tell you more about when Australia signed up to it and everything like that, but it wasn't that long ago, but we've still been doing the same thing. And it's kind of, that's, you know, that cycle of the same thing.
2: How long ago was it that Australia signed up, Madeline? I believe it was in 2009, but it wasn't straight after the declaration was passed. So Australia was actually one of the four countries that opposed it.
0: So we we were a bit slow to the game. Have
1: things improved in that decade since? I think things have improved, but we still have a long way to go. And I think the key thing to that is we all know change takes time, but we've been waiting a long time. You know, a lot of people put the cornerstone on the 67 referendum and there was the 50-year anniversary, I think, back in 2017, and we were kind of reflecting on, well, what has changed? And and things have changed, but it is slow. And while we respect that change is slow, it's too slow.
0: mm and does your teaching experience, Julie, I remember you telling me about how just some of the conflicts that you found, does that motivate you to really find that policy that will make this work, something that is practical? and.
1: I think it's far more than just the policy, and that's why I'm looking at the process of it. It's attitudes, it's governance, it's literally about us having a voice in the process because at the moment nobody is held accountable for anything. The most accountable people are government and non-Indigenous people that sit at the table and tick all this off and cabinet. And so until we are there, personally I don't see a lot changing for a little while. We have the coalition of peaks now. That's only new. Um most of them are in the health sector as well. I mean it is taking strides and leaps and bounds and everything like that. But time will tell how successful that process is in terms of changing policy and accountability of the government.
0: Sounds like you're both trailblazers, can I say. I thought it's wonderful <laughs> to hear what you're doing in this such an important area. And particularly, I think this government and international relations area has been quite a um, male-dominated space, could I say. So how does that impact really on on your both has that been difficult to overcome?
2: Yeah Julie and I speak often about our discipline particularly and how it is a male dominated space and it's a colonial space as well. So as women within the School of Government and International Relations I believe we do carry a lot in this space trying to navigate it and have a voice and have a voice that is heard.
1: And then being an Indigenous woman on top of that is a whole other layer. If you look at government in general or people in those positions of power, they usually are male-dominated anyway. Um, You only need to look at our government to see that. It's not representative of our nation, let alone of genders. So our school in particular does replicate that a bit and we have some amazing women in our school that both Madeline and I look up to so that's been crucial has it absolutely I
2: I yeah yep. seeing them in that space and how they operate and learn from them
1: yeah and too because non-indigenous men function a whole lot different to indigenous men and in that particular a colonial and an academic space it's very hierarchical And I remember having conversations about even having babies. We were talking about in a a seminar about life after the PhD. And it was kind of like, well, what happens if you decide to have children? Where does that go? What happens there? And some of the male staff were like, you know, oh well, in this day and age, it shouldn't be like that. But at the same time, this is a very real thing for us. Like, when do you have a child? Do you put your career before it? Because most successful women that are trailblazers, as you'd like to say, they miss out on that opportunity of having children. And and as an Indigenous person, your family is so important to you. And if you miss that opportunity, it's heartbreaking. So there's all these layers to it. I mean, it would be heartbreaking for any woman, don't get me wrong, but I think that there's a lot of things in there. And we know that women end up with less super and everything like that because they're women, because they take time to raise children. So... Yeah, that might be a little bit off the beaten path, but I think it's a huge thing too in academia. And
0: so it's not just being Indigenous within this space, it's being female within this space, also being Indigenous and female in this space. All of those aspects, you know, bring bring you your insights into your research, but also challenges.
1: Could you maybe expand on that? So one would be, in a sense... It's very rare that you hear a lot of Indigenous research in the space because it is such a a vast space and you've got different sort of subsections of government and international relations. But also, too, when we are talking about Indigenous research, I think we are experts in the field because we are Indigenous and we have our experience and our family's experience to draw upon as well as our academic research And sometimes in a hierarchical structure, it's kind of like, and who are you to speak? You're the PhD student. You are the bottom of the rung. You need to earn your way to the top. In our society, it doesn't work like that. Um, Everybody has an opportunity to speak. Far more inclusive in that sense. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so it's like, do we have the cultural space to speak about something that's happened and say well you know um, I remember there was one particular I don't think Madeline had come on board yet for her PhD but it was about I tried to explain the concept of knowledge and how you can't just share knowledge that you've learned along the way because it can belong to somebody and you're gifted and I was trying to explain it to a room full of non-indigenous academics that a lot were, were very stumped by the notion of not being able to take something and reproduce it.
0: It illustrates some of the tensions really, doesn't it? And a lot of so much Indigenous research historically has been by white
2: men. Uh, So you're overcoming
0: that aspect as well.
2: Yes, definitely. Given the history of exploitation of our communities and our knowledges Mm -hmm. through processes of colonisation, it's imperative that we as Indigenous people uphold the IATSIS, particularly IATSIS Code of Ethics for Indigenous Research and embody, embody those values within our research. What are some of those or what what the principles, I suppose, more broadly? The four main principles are Indigenous self-determination, Indigenous leadership, impact and value and sustainability and accountability.
0: And I imagine that would be really important for all the people in your team to know as well, like your supervisors. This this impacts on every level of, of the research you're doing.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I, I, we're, Madeline and I are very lucky because we have very good supervisors who um, are willing, they know as well as they're willing to listen and learn from us as well. And I think, too, going back to your point about research being predominantly done, especially in this field by, you know, non-Indigenous men in general, is actually sometimes detrimental to our people and everything like that. Anthropologists in particular have a lot to answer for. There's a whole range of it, but... That lens on top of, so if you're doing Indigenous research as a non-Indigenous researcher, your lens is completely skewed. And, I, you know, personally, I feel like that's why it's so important that we're in this space. It's hard. Don't get me wrong. It is really hard. But it's super important that we're here and, and try to persevere through
0: what are some of those
1: challenges that you've faced, I suppose, looking at
0: it, trying to be constructive, really? What can people listening learn? And who are th- thinking of being a supervisor or assisting in research like this?
1: What are some of the, the issues that they need to be aware of? I think one of the main things is, and Madeline and I have talked about this, is our projects are not able to be unseparated from us. So mm. they are inherently a part of us and our identity as people and that doing this research is not just doing research. It is quite traumatizing sometimes because you're having to relive things, constantly reading negative, especially in in my um, particular um, field, and I'm sure Madeline's too because hers draws a lot on some anthropological research, but, you know, even the education side, like the, the, the way that things have written about our people and it's just it's a lot sometimes and sometimes we have to take a step and back and go i need some time out and i and i don't know if that's accounted for for indigenous students in their phd like that mental health side of things and it's it's not as simple as going well here's a number to the psychologist the university psychologist
0: it's very specific to your background well yeah because yes.
1: also too it's a part of our life mm-hmm. you know it it's not it's not separate This isn't work for you. You're not clocking on and
0: clocking off. It's, uh, as you say, completely central to your identity. Do you find that too, Madeline?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking in terms of non-Indigenous supervisors who have Indigenous HDR candidates or are looking to have HDR candidates in the future... I think it's really important to have a good understanding of our histories because they are very complex and they're very diverse depending on where we come from uh, in the country. And also having an understanding and appreciation of Indigenous methodologies or our ways of being and doing is really important.
1: And I think relationships are key to that. And I think a lot of the time, some we're all very busy. I know that. <laughs> But building those relationships are key. And Madeline and I, coming from teaching backgrounds, we know that that's 101 teaching. I know that they're not our teachers, they're our supervisors, but it's also inherent in our culture to build those relationships, to feel comfortable enough to say to your supervisor, hey, I'm I'm not doing okay, this is really you know impacting me it's a lot for me this
0: particular aspect I've just researched at at the moment has just been too much
1: too much Mm. yeah and just being able to have that conversation be like I just need to take a week out and not look at it because I just need to try to get myself back together again so
0: that trust is really important trust and also that respect of your background
1: and your history yeah definitely Definitely. And like I said, Madeline and I are very lucky because we've we've had good supervisors that understand that. But it's not as simple as just doing research. So if you look at it from a really methodical kind of it's just a process, I'm your supervisor. We'll meet once a week or once a month. Sometimes that's not enough for us. You know, sometimes we just need to yarn about how we're feeling or yarn out ideas because that's one thing it's been really a blessing meeting Madeline because she has become my sister. We talk every day and yarning through those things has been critical. And if I didn't have Madeline, I might've dropped out a long time ago.
2: And I can second that Julie, the PhD experience is very isolating and as it is, but as Aboriginal people, we come from communities and we value Relationships. Not saying that non-Indigenous people don't, but our systems aren't hierarchical, they aren't individualistic, they're not competitive. So finding Julie on this journey has just been amazing and I don't think I could get through it without her.
0: It's like you've made your own... Kind of group research. You're both researching completely different, contrasting areas in in many ways, but you've got that group support. That sounds like that's pretty crucial if that can be fostered as well. Absolutely,
2: yeah. and yeah, you've you've termed it really well. We are sort of like a, a team, even though we're doing separate yeah. topics.
1: <laughs> and I think too, we're each other's sounding boards. And I know Madeline's research inside out. I think, and so <laughs> she'll be talking about something, and I think that is really useful to have. And, and I, I think, you know, because then I'll say, that is, uh, you know, like what you're talking about, like you should be focusing on. So it's like that outside perspective when you don't have your supervisor because you can't just talk to your supervisor whenever you want. And COVID being COVID, we had to go online. And so Madeline and I started Microsoft teamings every day. Like we would just get on the computer, do our work, but it was just like that interaction. And actually, it's quite funny. We've probably spent more time online seeing each other than in person. (laughs) But
0: those relationships are key. So whether it's online or meeting like we are today, or it sounds like that's been a really crucial part of you being able to progress and bring this complex research
1: together. You know, doing a PhD is no easy task. No. And the IRU, the Indigenous Research Unit here at Griffith, has been phenomenal in supporting students. And that would be another strategy, I guess, if especially um, supervisors at this university or other universities look at what structures are in place there, because they are amazing. We asked to do a mini writing retreat, just, you know, a couple of us. They set up the boardroom for us. They're so lovely. Like, they had Kit Kats for us, which is (laughs) awesome. But, you know, like, You ask and pretty much they can help in any way possible. And I think it's the same for the supervisors. You know, if the supervisors went in and said, look, I'm not sure, could you help me? Is there this or is there that? That they would be like, yep, they'd be able to direct them and help them.
2: Yeah, and the IRU has also been great at accommodating our requests, but to mix with other Aboriginal people in this space, which is also really important. And actually
0: fostering that. Actually really enabling that to happen.
2: Yes, and realising that we aren't alone and that, you know, there are others within this university who are on the same journey as us even though they're not in the same faculty.
0: Well, because PhD can be a pretty lonely journey. A lot of it is basically you've got to really nut it out yourself but to, uh, to know that that network is out there sounds like that's been really important. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely invaluable. Because as you said, Madeline, you're accountable to your community. your research that can you explain that even a little bit more sounds like that could weigh on you quite a bit as well as being an exciting aspect of your research but that's an aspect that is quite unique to indigenous research i think
2: yeah so in the case of julie and i our research is about aboriginal people and our our communities so of course we are accountable to them and even though they're not always physically with us they are always with us and when we speak we may not necessarily speak on behalf of all of them, but we are speaking for our people.
0: Makes it hard to, at times, to do things that maybe would be asked of you, perhaps by supervisors, and perhaps by other researchers who don't understand the intricacies of that.
2: Yeah, and there's there's lots of demands on us in terms of family, in terms of community responsibility.
1: Yeah, and also too, one thing that I've come across with my research is when I've been speaking to those old fellas they've all been saying you know I want to give you this knowledge so that you can continue on and that's a lot it's a lot to carry and you know not too long ago I remember our riding retreat I was you know crying in the hotel room to Madeline <laughs> saying I don't know if I can if I can do it it's such a big thing and it's such a big fight and like it is sometimes you have those moments where mm-hmm. you go I it's a lot, you know, because these these old people, like I said before, have fought so hard. And then they share this knowledge with me and say, I'm giving this to you so you can continue on. That's a real honor, but that is a lot to carry. It's one that I'm willing to carry. But taking that into consideration when we talk about those tensions and how hard it is, like I'm trying to, to try and make it better, as is Madeline, and, and it's just... It's a lot. And I don't think sometimes non-Indigenous people understand that huge thing that you're carrying on your shoulders. And while that
0: network is there and it's an immense support, I think there was another aspect you mentioned that I think perhaps would be good for people at university to be aware of us, and that really is that lack of generational wealth and in that sense that understanding of an academic path. Would that be right?
1: Yeah. So, like, for example, when I first started university, I didn't know who to turn to, to ask for help. You know, my dad went to grade six. So it was kind of like, I don't know what to do. So it took me multiple attempts to get to where I am. And it's all been about learning and failing and getting up again. And, and that's where the the relationships come from. And I, I said to Madeline the other week, actually, like, I hope that I am helping you on your journey because I've always come across others who have mentored me on my journey and still continue to mentor me on my journey because we don't have education is is always been a very elitist thing, and it's only recent that it's been knocked down to, you know, in the Whitlam era where we had free education and everything like that, where we trying to create this equality. But a lot of people who are doing PhDs have connections with their parents being academics or you know some very prestige kind of job and we don't necessarily have that. Our our land was stolen. We don't have generational wealth. I see people that have their family who have been established in Australia mm-hmm. for a long time selling massive amounts of land and that, that, that wealth is shared and distributed through their family. And we don't have that, you know, I've got no one to fall back on. You know, if anyone in my family asks for anything, you give. Yeah. And this is where the scholarships that we
2: are on come into play because without those scholarships, we wouldn't have been able to afford to leave teaching and pursue higher education. No, no way.
0: So here's a a call out to all those people who organise those scholarships, keep them going. Perhaps provide more because they sound like that was pretty crucial for you. Well, you couldn't have been here without it. No, No. we couldn't have.
1: And and the thing is too, like, uh, not that I'm old, but (laughs) like, you know, like I've got a house and you go into a workforce and you set yourself up and you've got to keep going. And I'm not saying that that isn't the same for everybody else, but yeah, it's just they've been really helpful in that sense. But then transitioning out of the PhD is another obstacle because where to next?
0: Well, I can see you both having a very exciting career in this, just hearing what you've achieved so far. What's the next step for both of you from here? That's a tough one,
2: <laughs> I think, to get through the PhD. that's Absolutely. That's the goal. Submit that. I'm trying to keep my options open, see where the wind takes me, see where my skills can be most useful.
1: Yeah, and the same. One of my key things is I want to leave this world better than what I, came, what I came into. So that's definitely morally and ethically where I'll end up. But where that is is something different and to bring – our mob up and not continually push down so I know that's not a very clear answer but I'm sure that I'll be guided in the right direction when the time comes. Any
0: other uh, tips that you can give to people listening who, who really want to support their Indigenous colleagues in this space? Is it sometimes as simple as talking a bit about country when you meet people and or what are some practical tips that you could give?
2: I find that sometimes people are scared to offend and they don't know what to say and what not to say. And I encourage people who are in that situation to just sit down and have a yarn and get to know us and ask us how we identify and ask us what our views are on X, Y, Z and get to know us and feel for us and then you'll learn how to navigate the space. So don't be afraid to ask. Yeah. You're not going to be offended if we ask. Yeah, and listen. yes, and listen. And reflect. (laughs)
1: Yeah, definitely. I think Madeline's hit the nail on the head there. I guess from a research perspective as well, if you're going to do Indigenous research, you need to do it correctly through the right protocols. And you need to have Indigenous researchers with you from day one. It's not about asking us to be there at the end of your research so that you get a tick in the box that you've done Indigenous research and you've met the standards, because I'm sure all of us will go no, we're not doing it because because at the end of the day, we have to put our name to that. And like we said, we're accountable to our community. So if, if people, uh, researchers are just seeking out Indigenous people for their own benefit, it's not going to go down well and they're not going to get those people on board.
2: And we do want to participate in research with non-Indigenous people, but we want to do it on Aboriginal terms. And that is being involved in the process from the start not just at the analysis end of the research or the publication.
1: Yeah. Truly
0: definitely. being at the table, not just at the end of the process. Definitely. At the table
1: throughout. And, and having the space to say you can't do that. Like we said before about the hierarchy and we are the experts in this. So if we tell you that's inappropriate, you can't do that, We have to have the space to do it. And I think that's a whole lot of relearning for academics in the Indigenous space that are non-Indigenous.
2: Yeah, I agree. Having a voice and having that voice heard is really important.
0: Well, I think that's a wonderful place to end. Thank you so much for joining us today, Julie and Madeline, on the Gender Cart. Thank you. Thank you. That was Griffith University PhD candidates and researchers Julie Ballengarry and Madeline Pugin. That's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton, with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.